You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. As most of you know, every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., I'm meeting with about 25 men in our church who are going through Jay Stringer's book, Unwanted. It's a book on unwanted sexual behavior. And uh, a few weeks ago, we're about midway through the book, and, and, and a guy came up to me, and I was talking to him about the book and uh, what his experience has been like. And, and what he told me is that, he said, you know, if I can be honest with you, he said, I'm, I'm beginning to experience some feelings of hopelessness, some feelings of despair, which is not really what I wanted to hear. It's not why I started the group, right? And, and I said, well, well, tell me more about kind of what's going on. And what he said was essentially this. He said, you know, whenever I decided to go through this incredibly dense book and to wake up every single morning and, and, and dive into my sin and be very vulnerable and confess all this stuff to these guys, I'd hope that, that maybe this might just be the thing, that, that, that this might just be the piece of information I was needing or the key that I needed to unlock this whole new reality where I would no longer struggle with my temptations and sins ever again. And as I began to talk with this guy more, what I realized is that he was asking himself a question that I think many of us at one time or another ask in our own lives. And the question that he was beginning to ponder is this. Is change actually possible? Like as we think about our own unwanted behavior, whatever it may be, as we think about the different issues that we struggle with, as our own anxiety or depression or addictions, our own unwanted behaviors, we often wonder, is change actually possible? I was recently reading an article uh, about Bono's new memoir entitled Surrender. It's a book I hope to read over Christmas break. And I was struck how in this article, there's a quote from the book where, you know, when Bono was young, he made the comment. He said, and I quote, I cannot change the world, but I can change the world within me. But now looking back at his life, he flipped that. He said, I can change the world. I just can't change the world in me. And maybe some of you can resonate with that today because of deep-seated sins or addictions or things in your life. You're just beginning to think, yeah, like maybe I can change that out there. If I don't like my neighborhood, I can get a different neighborhood. If I don't like my friends, I can get new friends. If I don't like my job, I can change my job. But I cannot figure out how to change this thing in me. And so as a result, maybe like that man in the unwanted group, you're feeling some feelings of hopelessness and despair this holiday season. And if that's where you are, first thing I want to say is uh, you're not alone. Everybody has feelings like this from time to time. But then secondly, I want you to know that change truly is possible. Like no matter how deep your sins or no matter how dark your past, you truly can be transformed uh, into uh, more and more into the image of Jesus. And more and more, I would say as a result, into your true and your better self. But here's what I want you to realize today. The ironic thing about the Christian faith is this. If you want to be transformed more into the image of your true and better self, you actually need to think less about yourself. Uh, you actually need to stop focusing so much on me and focus more on he. And I know that seems really crazy in a self-absorbed, narcissistic culture like ours. But as we see in the scripture and as we know, I was talking to someone who just went through a 12-step program. And he was saying how this is what they're taught even in the 12-step program is the more consumed you are with your own life, the more miserable you're going to become. Like if you want to change, you need to go from being inward focused and always thinking about my time and my money and my wants and my desires and my dreams to actually thinking instead about God. 
uh, putting him actually first in your life. And that's what I love about the Advent season. Advent is meant to slow us down. You know, the consumeristic culture wants to speed us up this time of year, but Advent wants to slow us down. And it wants to lift our eyes off of ourselves and on to Jesus, the one who alone can actually carry the weight of your worship and transform you, therefore, from the inside out into a way that you can experience the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that you long for. And so with that in mind, I want you to, to look back with me in our passage today and just set the context for you. I want you to think about this. What just happened is that uh, an angel has appeared to this teenage girl who's very poor. Her name is Mary. And what you need to know about Mary is Mary is not cool. Mary is not impressive. Mary would not sit at the cool kids' table. She was actually a part of a group called the Anawam Group. It was a marginalized people, uh, both socially and economically, in this society. So this is a girl who has no earthly power. This is not a popular girl. And yet this is the girl, think about this, whom God chose to be the mother of Jesus. This girl who's at the bottom rung of society. This angel appears to her and says, Mary, you have found favor with God. The Holy Spirit is about to overshadow you. And though you're a virgin, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son whom you are to name Jesus. And I want you to think about what this would mean for Mary, by the way. Often this can be lost on us during the holiday season. In this culture, if you had sex outside of marriage, it was basically a death wish. Uh, You would be stoned for adultery. And you say, well, why is that a big deal? Because think about this. If somebody came up to you and they were pregnant, they're like, yeah, I know what this looks like, but it's actually God's son. How likely is it that you're going to believe them? You're going to think they're crazy. And as crazy as that sounds to you, like, oh, God did this, right? Like, it sounded just as crazy to those in the first century. But this is the conversation she has to go now, go and have with her fiancé, Joseph. She has to have it with her mom, her dad, with her friends. Undoubtedly, this is news that would have ruined Mary's reputation. This is an inconvenience and an interruption at best. This is going to make Mary's life harder, not easier. And yet, in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, here's how she responds. I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Now, at this point... I think we can all agree, Mary is not necessarily thrilled about the news that she has received. She is not yet overflowing with joy. But how does she respond to the news? She surrenders. She, rather than letting her feelings control her, which we often do in our society, she doesn't probably probably really feel like doing this, and yet she submits. She says, I am the Lord's servant. I will therefore do whatever you ask me to do. She then travels to meet with her cousin Elizabeth, and if you look, she walks into the room And in verse 42, here's what we read in chapter 1. Mary, or Elizabeth, is is overcome with the Holy Spirit. And it says that she exclaimed uh, with a loud voice, right? Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the child that you will bear. And then she asks this question, verse 43. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord... And notice, by the way, what Elizabeth uh, acknowledges there. That this baby is not just from the Lord. This baby is the Lord. Do you see that in there? So she realizes, like, she's got this supernatural wisdom that, that, that God has given her, that, oh, like, this is God in the flesh right here that's going to be born. She says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And when she asks that question, listen, guys, the penny drops for Mary. Like, the word that she received from the angel that she had in her head now begins to settle into her heart. And therefore, in verse 46, she begins to joyfully worship God. She's so overwhelmed with joy, she cannot help but sing the very first Christmas carol that is ever written. 
And before we look at these lyrics, I just want to point out something that I think is a a word specifically for the crossing church, and it's this. When you get a word from God, or you think you get a word from God, like Mary did right here, you need to process that with other people. Notice in here that Mary does not receive a word from the angel and just sit on it. Or just keep it to herself. But rather, she goes to her cousin Elizabeth, this woman of faith, and it's not until she has a conversation with Elizabeth that all the pieces of the puzzle begin to fit together for her. And I think that's really important. Because I, I, I'm shocked how many times, guys, I hear of people over the last you know, 10, 11, 12 years in this church, people who make major life decisions without talking to another brother or sister or a pastor or a Christian mentor outside of their home. And if that is where you are today, listen, I just want to say, like, that's a dangerous game to play because the truth is you are far easier, you are far more easily deceived than you think you are. And in Proverbs 14, 12, for example, it says, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. And so there are times where you can think, oh, I have clearly heard from God. I know the right thing to do, but in fact, you are being deceived and you are moving into a direction that in one way, shape or form could lead you into destruction. And so we need to process things with other people. Uh, about a month ago, we had to remove someone uh, from our service. I think it's happened twice, maybe, in our church's existence. Um, and it was, it was really, it was in between services. And so there was a guy uh, I heard wanted to talk to me. And so we went to my office, and, and he said, um, Hey, I just need you to know that um, I can preach the message better than the other guy that was preaching. Uh, which, by the way, it was a great message that day. And he's like, I've got a word from the Lord, and I need to share it with the people. And I said, well, um, I'm not going to let you do that. Like, we don't just let some random stranger get up and, and start speaking. And he says, well, God told me I need to do this. And I said, no, he didn't. And he said, well, how do you know? I said, because if God would have told you, he also would have told me. Because as a lead pastor of the church, like, it's my job to actually guard the teaching here and to make sure that it's all in line with the scriptures. And, and you know, here's the thing, what I want you to realize, like, People standing up and saying things like, well, God told me, no matter what you said, like, you realize, that's how cults get started. Yeah. You realize that? Yeah. God told me, right? Like, and it's if, like, I shouldn't even invite you into the process. If God told me, you just need to go along with it no matter what. But that's not what we see right here with Elizabeth and Mary, right? Listen, as, as crazy as it may seem for someone else to say, I'm going to get up here and I'm going to preach because God told me, like, like, this is something that we do in our own lives. I see people switch jobs because God told me. They didn't process it with anybody else. See, people will choose who they're going to marry or who they're going to date because God told me, but they don't process it with anybody else. And if that's you, listen, no condemnation from me, but I would just encourage you to have a little bit more humility, to realize possibly we can be deceived, that we don't see the whole picture, that our ego can get in the way. And therefore, when we feel God is calling us to do something, to make a decision, let's start inviting other brothers or sisters or a pastor or somebody to process that information with us. Mary has that wisdom. She goes to Elizabeth. She says, here's a word I've received from an angel. And immediately Elizabeth, when she hears it, she affirms the message. And then after there's affirmation, then we have celebration. Now Mary is going to obey God. Listen to this. Not out of duty, but out of delight. Now, sometimes we do need to obey God out of duty. Even if you don't feel like it. God said it. I don't want to do it. But he said it. I'm going to do it. But that's not ideal. You want to obey God out of delight more than you want to out of duty. And now that's where Mary is. She breaks out in this song. And look with me. In verse 48, here's the lyrics. My soul glorifies the Lord, or your translation might say magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble, uh, of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will be called, or will call me blessed. 
For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Do you see what Mary is saying here? She's saying, look, not only am I blessed, but all the generations who come after me can also be blessed. Like you can receive the favor of God. Like the same favor that I received, you can receive that favor. You can receive that blessing. And listen, not because of your works, not because of anything you have done, but because of what God has done for you. And what has God done? She said he's extended mercy. Rather than God giving us what we deserve, which is punishment for our sins, he has given us what we don't deserve. He has given us his son, Jesus, who alone can provide us with the forgiveness and the freedom and the fulfillment that we are longing for. I don't know about you, but uh, my kids, uh, one of the things I used to hear from them regularly is this phrase, that's not fair. Anybody else ever had their kids say that? Um, his cookie is bigger than my cookie. That's not fair. Right? She got more screen time than me. That's not fair. And as adults, are we really that much different? He got the promotion even though I'm a way better employee than him. That's not fair. Her kids turn out better than my kids, and I'm a way better mom than her. That's not fair. I literally heard someone say in the foyer after the first service, uh, this lady went up to another man and said, I never met you in my entire life. I just want you to know you have the best eyelashes of any man I've ever seen. And as a woman, that's not fair. Like, that's literally what she said. And then she looked at me and she's like, don't say anything. Because she heard me say it. I'm like, oh, you just proved a point. Um, we can throw these same tantrums. Life is not fair. But I'll tell you, like, like you want to know a story that's really not fair? It's the Christmas story. Because God, again, given us what we deserve, which is hell, like that's what would be fair. He instead gives us his son, Jesus. So let's just like take a moment this holiday season and say, God, thank you so much for not being fair to me. Because if you're fair to me, things don't go well. Thank you, God. As a matter of fact, God, please continue to be very, very, very unfair to me. Unfair. That's what we want. And Mary realizes that. Like, thank you, God, for giving me what I don't deserve. That's called grace. That's called mercy. And out of this place, in verse 46, she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God. Right? Why? Because of his mercy. Because God has chosen me to carry inside of me this Savior who will one day carry a cross for me, who will shed his blood for you, for me, so that we can now stand before this holy God, holy, blameless, and accepted. That is the first part of the psalm. But then if you look with me, Mary continues to sing. And in verse 51, she says, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be, here's the word again, merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. Anybody in here like Christmas songs, like listening to Christmas songs? I don't like singing them a whole lot sometimes because they're hard to sing. So a few of you, three of you like Christmas songs? Okay, six of you like Christmas songs? Wow. Okay. Um, worship leader next week. Kill the Christmas songs. Um, I like Christmas songs. Unlike all you Grinches out there. Like from Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Frank Sinatra to All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. Which is the greatest Christmas song probably ever written. I love Christmas songs. And the reason I love Christmas songs is they make me feel good. They like, they make me sentimental. They make me warm and fuzzy. That's what I feel like a good Christmas song should do. That's not what Mary's song does. Starts that way. 
It starts with some warm and fuzzies, but it quickly moves to some doom and gloom. Because if you notice, according to her lyrics, there are some people who are not going to make it in. She says there's some people that God and his mercy are going to gather. But then there's others that he's going to scatter. He's going to lift up some. And he's going to tear down others. And if you notice, look with your own eyes. Who are the ones who were left out? Who are the ones who are going to miss out on God's mercy and therefore the life they long for? Listen to me very carefully. It's not the bad people. It's the good people. It's not the sinner. It's those who think they are righteous because of their own good works. Who just kind of give themselves a little pat on the back and say, God, aren't you glad to have someone like me? On your team. These are the ones. Whom God is going to chop down. But on the flip side. Those who are humble. Those who are actually at the bottom of society. The last and the least. Who recognize their need. For Jesus. They're the ones who are going to be lifted up. And fulfilled. And this isn't just what we see here. Jesus taught this. In his very first sermon he ever preached, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, it's like Jesus' kind of manifesto. It's like some of the most important teachings all right there. How does he start the Sermon on the Mount? Think about this. His opening line, blessed are or happy are, he says, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, those that we often look down on in society are the very ones that God is trying to build his kingdom with. And that is why Mary begins to rejoice. Because that's where she is. We said this before. But you know what God needs from you? More than God needs anything else from you. You know what he needs from you? Your neediness. Your neediness is your way into the kingdom of God. Showing up and saying, I have nothing to bring but the empty hands of faith. This is why whenever monk Thomas Merton was asked, hey, what is one thing that you want to say to your friends? Listen to this quote. I've been meditating on this quote for probably a year now. After writing over 50 books, here's what Thomas Merton said. If I had a message to my contemporaries, it's surely this. You ready for it? Be anything you like, be madmen, be drunks, bastards of every shape and form, but at all costs, avoid one thing, success. That's not what I would have expected that he was going to say. Why? Why, 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 why avoid success? Is this guy just a loser? Does he just hate winners? No, he realizes the dangers that come from winning. He realizes that, guys, something happens inside of us where the more successful we are, the more prideful we can become. And this is a really big problem because the Bible is clear and says it over and over and over that, quote, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about for you, but that's a really convicting word for me. I thought about it this week. It's like, I really want to be humble. I really, really do. But I don't ever want to be humiliated. 
And I don't know if, I seriously don't know if you can get humility without humiliation. I don't know how you can just win all the time and be humble. Like you've got to have these moments where you do maybe look a little bit weak or dumb or slow or at least feel that way. But that ain't me. Like I don't ever want to be weak, dumb, slow, incompetent, any of that. Like I want each of you to see me. And I want you to see me as strong and competent and successful. Like, yeah, like, yeah, I want God's grace, but I also want to be great. And come to find out, like, you read the Bible, God's definition of greatness seems to be a whole lot different than the American definition of greatness. Jesus said this. I'll just read it to you. This is his words, Mark 10, 43. His disciples were arguing about who wants to be the greatest, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And he doesn't notice, he doesn't condemn and say, hey, you shouldn't try to be great. That's not good. He actually doesn't condemn that. Jesus wants you to be great too. Jesus created you for greatness. This is definition. Notice what it is. Chapter 10, verse 43. Whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. Why? Because that's the way Jesus is. He says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. True greatness, according to Jesus, is not climbing the ladder. It's laying down your life. It's taking on the mindset of Jesus himself and even of Mary right here in Luke 1 that essentially says, I am not here to be served. I'm here to serve. I'm here to give my life away for the good of others and ultimately for the glory of God. And listen, if you want to know how to worship God fully, that's how you do it. What we do here on a Sunday morning, yes, this is worship, but worship is far more than what you do with your lips. Worship is something you do with your life. It is not just something that we do here on a Sunday morning. It's something that we do in the everyday stuff of life. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, that we are to be a living sacrifice. And then he says, this is what true and proper worship looks like. And so listen to me, worship, worship is not primarily about singing. Worship is about sacrificing. It's doing what Mary has done here. It's saying, God, here I am. I am not here for you to serve me. I am here to serve you, and I'm here to serve others because I know, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, what I do, and to the least of these, I also do to you. And if you hear that and you're like, okay, that all sounds great, but what does that look like? I'm really glad you asked. Thank you for asking that. In Micah chapter 6, verse 6, here's what we read. It says this, and I'll put it on the screen for you. With what the prophet asked With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? So he's asking the great question. What does it look like, God, for me to worship you? How how do you want me to worship you? Like, What would good and proper worship look like? And then he just kind of keeps asking a question. Shall I come before you with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn? Would you like me to kill my kids? Is that what you want me to do? I'll do whatever it takes, God. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Is that what you would like me to do? Is that what worship would please you, God? And here's the response, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? We sung about it earlier. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. You want to know how to worship God fully? He says, do the right thing. Extend mercy. 
to others. How do you extend mercy to others? What does that mean? You don't give other people what they deserve. So if someone wrongs you, you forgive them. You give people what they don't deserve. You extend mercy, and then you walk humbly with the God who himself is humble enough to descend from a perfect place in heaven down to this dark and dirty world into the lowest places of society to extend his love. Micah says, you do that, that's what true and proper worship looks like. And so with that in mind, here's what I want to call us to do this Advent season. Four things, if you're taking notes. And all four of these, by the way, come out of Matthew 25, where Jesus is like, want to know who the true Christians are versus those who do say they're Christians is not Christians? It's those who do these things right here. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the lonely, visit the afflicted. What does that look like on a practical level? Feed the hungry. We are partnering with Whithouse, which is a ministry with First United Methodist Church. Jim Jackson, who's been a member of our church, helps oversee that. And they are in desperate need for food right now. So over the next three weeks, I want to encourage you, church, to buy some canned goods or bring some canned goods from your own pantry. You can see right there, and we'll send out a list later this week so you can have that. And just bring them and set them in the foyer. Over the next three weeks, we're going to collect food, and then we'll deliver it to the Whithouse. Secondly, we're going to clothe the naked. We have a ministry here known as the Mercy Closet, ran by a missional community. Do you realize that this missional community, uh, over the last year, we know of has at least clothed over 900 people. Think about that. 900 people. And it's such a blessing to me to have my office right here where I get to see them walk in to get clothes. You know, even back to school where, where moms can't afford clothes for their kids, they're able to come and, and get it. And it's just such a blessing to my heart to be able to see that. But they're in need of clothes because people are in need of clothes. Uh, they're particularly in need. I've, I've heard of women's jeans. And so if you're a lady and you have a pair of jeans that you don't need, bring those. They also could use anything else. And so rather than just dropping off clothes, which we want to encourage you to do that, someone actually brought clothes right after the first service. I was like, that's applying the word of God. That's awesome. She's like, well, I was going to take them to Goodwill, but I thought this would be a better use of it. So great. Um, December 3rd, 10th, and 17th. Rather than just dropping off your clothes, on these three Sundays, starting this Sunday, from 1 to 2 p.m. or 2 to 3 p.m., we're asking everyone to give us at least an hour. And so if you're in a missional community, it'd be great for you to do this with your missional community, to sign up and say, hey, let's pick the tent from one to two, and we're going to go and help them organize clothes. Even if you're not in a missional community, you can show up to that. would encourage you to pitch in. That's a way we're going to help clothe the naked. Third, welcome the lonely. Christmas is a very lonely time for a lot of people. Depression rises during the holidays. Suicide rises during the holidays. I want you to, church, look for lonely people. Can we be that kind of church? Not just here on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is a great place, but even throughout the week, like, like that's one thing that we've tried to say to our kids as we drop them off to school. Like, look for lonely people. There's a lot of lonely people out there. People who don't have family, don't have friends. Maybe they're in a nursing home. Maybe for whatever reason they've burnt bridges somewhere along the way. Look for those who cannot do anything for you, who maybe are overlooked by society. And I would encourage you, invite them to your missional community meal or even to your own family meal over the holidays. And the fourth thing is this, is visit the afflicted. Jesus here is talking specifically about those who are sick or those who are imprisoned. And so if you think about the afflicted, listen, sometimes we're afflicted because of things that have been done to us. And then sometimes we're afflicted because of things that we've done to ourselves. Either way, we need to go and visit those people and extend to them the mercy of God because this is what he has done for us. To end, I'm going to invite the band to come forward. I want you to look at this painting I'm going to put on the screen. I just now came across this today. And um, this is actually, it's a, a piece of art. It's entitled Mary Comforts Eve. It's painted by Sister Grace Remington. And there's so much going on here. But what struck me, and try to really focus on this for a second. Hopefully you can see it where you are. 
Notice the, the difference between Eve, who's on the left, and Mary on the right. And so Eve is still being tripped up by that ancient serpent called the devil. And, and can you see this where you are? What is she holding in her hand? Say it loud or somebody. Yeah, fruit. Yeah, she still has the forbidden fruit. Isn't that so much like us? She took the fruit. Her life began to fall apart, but she still wants to hang on to it. It's the way a lot of us are right now. It's being asked the question, can I really change? Can I really release this thing? Can I really ever get better? She's still hanging on to this fruit, to the sin, and as a result, she's walking in shame. But notice the difference between her and Mary. Right? Mary seems to be compassionate. Her face is one of more of joy. And what is she doing with her hands? She's got one hand on Eve's face. Her other hand, she's grabbed and she's put it on her belly. What is Mary doing? Well, she's doing what Advent is meant to do for us. It's to focus our head, our hand, and our heart on our Savior, on Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us, guys, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that is the only way that you can change. It is by beholding the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And so here's the invitation over the Advent season. Let's change the subject. Some of you are so focused on your own life. And this is for different reasons. Some of you are just so consumed with with your sin and your brokenness and your failure and your flaws. And listen, we do need to be honest about those things, but some of you are stuck there. You need to get your eyes off of that. Like, yeah, look at your sin. But for every look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. Because no matter what your sin is, his grace can beat it. I promise you. For others of you, it's not that you're so focused on on your bad deeds, but your good deeds. And you're just impressed with your own resume and your own accomplishments. And wherever you are today, the, the invitation from the Lord is to look to him, to fix your eyes on him the one who alone can transform us from the inside out with the love that he is pouring out for you right now as a free gift that all you have to do is receive with the empty hands of faith. And you don't have to feel like he should love you. You don't even have to necessarily think that he should love you, but faith you receive. You know what? I do believe that no matter what I have done, that you love me as much as you say that you do. And this holiday season, I'm going to receive that love. I'm going to be transformed by that love and be a conduit of that love in the lives of other people. That's the invitation today. And one of the ways that we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus is through communion. I'm going to invite our servers. If you want, go ahead and come forward. And every week we take communion. Communion is a reminder when we tear off the piece of bread of the perfect life of Jesus that he lived on our behalf so we don't have to be perfect. We dip in the juice to remember his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you're a member of this church, or even if you're not a member of this church, if you're a Christian, you're invited to do this. Another way we respond in worship is by giving. We remember that everything we have is a gift from God. One way that we respond back in worship is to give just a portion of what he's given us. God doesn't need our money. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. This isn't so much for God as it is for our own hearts. It's an act of worship that you can give, uh, you can see in the four different ways. We also have a prayer team back there in the back. Greg and Laura are there serving. I would encourage you, if you need prayer for anything, man, like one of the ways that we act like family is to get people to pray for us. It's one of the ways we embrace that identity. One of the ways that we walk out in faith and we trust in the power of prayer is asking other people to pray for us. It's not a sign of your immaturity that you would ask someone to pray for you. It's a sign of great maturity. And so if you want, you can go and ask them to pray for you. But I'll be up there, up here on the front if you want me to pray for you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, rather than receiving communion, I'd encourage you to receive Jesus.
receive the mercy that he wants to extend to you today. With that, let's stand together. I'll pray. When you're ready, you can take communion here. We also have a gluten-free option for you over here and a self-serve section if that would serve you better. Father, we do thank you so much for giving us your son, Jesus. We thank you for uh, the continued mercy that you pour out on us, that you do not need us to be impressive, to have our lives together. I thank you that, that Christmas is a reminder that we don't have to work our way to you, that you have worked your way to us. And so I pray for the person here who's been working and toiling to try to earn your love. They realize today there's nothing to earn. That they would just come to you, God, with these empty hands of faith. That they would just receive the truth of who you are and what you've done for them through your life, your death, and resurrection. It's in Christ I pray and ask these things. Amen.